Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a radically welcoming and progressive religious community, deeply committed to love, justice, and living out our values in the world. To learn more, visit us at firstuniversalistchurch.org. It is so good to see each one of you, and uh, I welcome you to the hymn. The hymn is 1028, 1028, the fire of commitment. I invite you to rise in all the ways that we do rise, with your body, with your mind, with your voice, and let us sing.
Welcome to First Universalist Church. My name is Ashley, and I am one of the ministers here among you. This Sunday, we begin exploring our March worship theme, which is persistence. Persistence. Congregants leading some of our legislative advocacy ministries will share their personal stories of persistence around issues at the center of their life's commitments. And we hope it will inspire you to take action on whatever burns in your heart. We also have the honor of Reverend Terry Bernor, Senior Movement Builder with Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light, joining us this morning. Woohoo! And she is going to ground us in some theological understanding and the full state perspective. And finally, after the attack on a Minneapolis trans woman last week and an onslaught of hateful legislative actions being brought forward across the country, we'll share a special blessing with and for our trans beloveds and families because we believe trans lives are sacred. Yes. And we will persist with love until that sacredness is universally recognized. We also have some other announcements that I left over there. Anyone have an order? Thanks. First of all, next week, daylight savings time. We just tell you that so you show up at the right time. We also want to encourage you to sign up for the Visionary Goals sessions, please, please, please. And it is the, um, a place to start Sunday. So if you are newer among us, um, or you'd just like to learn more about us and Unitarian Universalism, please come to up here where there's a green sign pointing you in the right direction to learn some more. Um, and finally, Arif wants you to know we have a square dance coming up. Yes, um, on April 16th, and sign-ups are live. So, that will be at church for all of you to enjoy. All right, and now, Terry, will you please ground us and offer our land acknowledgement now? So I want to invite you to lower your gaze or to close your eyes, let's settle together into this moment. This moment of pause to acknowledge some uncomfortable truths, some powerful truths that can serve as pathways of relationship, solidarity, and healing. Years of genocide, chattel slavery, ongoing occupation and extraction has brought us to this place where communities are fractured, where water is polluted, where land is eroding, where habitats are shrinking, and where trauma is embedded in the foundation of this state of Minnesota and these United States. For the area that is now the Twin Cities, the Dakota are the only indigenous people who have lived here since time immemorial and who have never called any other lands their ancestral home. 
1851 Dakota Treaty reduced their allowed land to a strip only 20 miles wide. And the 1863 Removal Acts displaced the Dakota and Ho-Chunk peoples beyond the boundaries of the Western Front. They were left with no homeland and no payments. This pattern of deep historical, spiritual, and personal traumas has impacted indigenous communities, communities of color, and immigrant communities in the metro and across the state. We cannot move forward into a just and sustainable future without repairing past harms and finding or returning to a better way of living with the land and caring for one another. By offering this acknowledgement, we affirm our intention to promote healing, accountability, respect, and love. Good morning, I'm Peg Mitchell. At the age of 22, I scheduled a session with my parish priest. I had recently left the convent, but was still pursuing a degree in theology. The dilemma? I no longer believed in God. The priest's questions led to my admission that if I believed in God, I would be asked to go to Bombay to save all the starving children. Mother Teresa already had Calcutta, so I was quite sure I was headed for Bombay. The priest asked me, had I ever loved someone? I knew the right answer was yes, so I said yes. He then asked whether or not that person expected to earn my love. I knew the answer was supposed to be no, so I said no. He assured me of God's unconditional love. I liked the idea, but the belief that I still had a role as a savior persisted. I managed to avoid buying a ticket for Bombay, but I have spent many of the last 50 years engaged in the question of what I should be doing for the good of others. I enjoy center stage, and I enjoy acts of service. So I've been quick to assert myself in roles that satisfy my need for saving. My journey toward anti-racism has informed me that I have spent a good amount of energy involved in white saviorism. I have taken great pleasure in recruiting people to help pull babies from the river. I know the babies need saving, but I'm quite convinced my role as savior was misguided. Thanks to many people in this congregation, I'm coming to grips with how I can best honor my values and the principles of our UU faith. I believe I can be a true ally to the cause of justice. Perhaps if I had recognized that role 20 or 30 years ago, I might have run for public office. I might have elected a career in which I worked hard to establish justice where it is missing virtually everywhere. But I am here now, and the role I understand is the most important and the one for which I still have capacity is advocacy. The God of my understanding is 
is expressed in truth, beauty, love, justice, and compassion. That God has led me to believe that advocacy rather than saviorism is my path. It might be a trip to the Capitol, a letter, a phone call, a vote, a financial contribution. It doesn't involve notoriety. It needn't even demand all my time. It is what I can still do, no matter what else is on my plate. Come, let us worship together. And I'll now ask Ashley and Arif if they would light the chalice. If you need any help, let us know. <laughs> Please join me in saying the words for lighting our chalice. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Good morning. I'm Caden Colton, a member of uh, this church, and I identify as non-binary. Trans lives are sacred. Trans lives are sacred. It's an affirmation of our theology, and we're going to say it quite a few times this morning. Will you say it with me? Trans, Trans lives, lives are, are sacred. sacred. This, like many other days, is a day when trans folks might wonder whether this country, this state, this city can be a place of belonging and safety, a place where trans lives are valued and protected. Throughout history, there have always been groups of people driven by a lust for power and control, under the thrall of supremacy and hate. They tend to latch on to the unholy fear of difference, the latent fear of liberation, and try to spread it to others. Over the past few years in this country, those groups have united in an unholy obsession with our trans beloveds and in particular with our precious trans, non-binary, and gender-exploring children and youth. There are hundreds of anti-trans bills uh, now making their way through uh, legislators across the country, uh, bent on limiting our kids' access to sports, uh, denying necessary health care to trans folks of all ages, threatening parents, teachers, and health care providers who dare to listen, to honor, and support the kids who count on them. Mm-hmm. Many of these Bills use religion as validation for discrimination. Many of them have already become law. Their rhetoric emboldens individual and institutional acts of exclusion and violence. The politicization of one's very existence is nothing less than a terror campaign. We fight back against that terror when we insist that all of us need all of us. 
that all of us are enriched by the recognition and celebration of gender diversity. Acting together right here in Minnesota, we can help make a law that would treat trans lives as sacred. We can support HF 146, a bill that aims to create legal refuge for youth coming to our state seeking gender-affirming care. Let us be part of a campaign of resistance, of inclusion, of love. Let us be a place of sanctuary, a layer of protection around our trans and gender creative children, youth, adults, and families. Let us re-sanctify what has been uh, debased by hatred. Say it with me. Trans lives, lives are, are sacred. sacred. Let us seal that truth into our hearts right here and right now. If you personally identify as someone whose expression of gender or absence of gender is misunderstood, politicized, threatened, if you are the parent or close family member of someone who is at risk, we invite you to let our support literally and figuratively surround you. We invite you to come on forward to this spot here in the front of the, of the chancel. We want to offer you a blessing and an affirmation. If you'd like to remain where you are and anonymously receive this blessing, that's okay too. Whether you're here at front or remaining where you are now, if it's comfortable to do so, if you would take a breath and let your body relax and open to receive this blessing. Congregation, will you please lift your hands as we bless our beautiful beloveds, beaming your love toward them. We offer this energy and these words to you and for trans, non-binary, and genderqueer people everywhere. May you know yourself worthy, whole, and inextricably connected to us and to the entire web of life. We give thanks for your existence. We need you. May the hearts of those who seek to dim your light be healed and changed. May the brilliant rainbow of gender break through to their awareness that they may understand its holy nature and rediscover their own humanity. Beloved parents and families, we witness your struggle too. We honor your commitment, advocacy, and unconditional love, which every child needs and deserves. We promise to support and stay with you. Beloved children and youth, we witness you as perfect, whole, and holy. We celebrate all of who you are and rededicate ourselves to nurture and protecting you as you 
grow into the fullness of your being. May you know yourself as the sacred being you are, from the innermost caverns of your heart to the outermost layer of your skin, safe and loved. Say it with me. Trans lives are sacred. Amen. Amen. And congregation, as they go, we invite you to write a blessing, an affirmation, or a love note to share with someone who needs it this morning. Write it on the post-it notes you were given as you entered the sanctuary. And later in the service, place them in the offering baskets as they are passed. They'll be collected and posted in the social hall downstairs. If you're joining us virtually, you're invited to type your blessing into the chat. Trans beloveds online, Will you let those words wash over and through you? Copy them down and keep them close. Trans, non-binary, and genderqueer folks here in person, after the service, uh, please head down to the social hall to read or listen to the words we lovingly wrote for you. Now select one or several to take with you, to carry in your pocket or put on your bathroom mirror as reminders that you are not alone. In a couple of weeks, we will box up those that remain and send them to some of our UU congregations in states that are being hit especially hard this legislative cycle. They need to know that we are with them. We're with you. We love you. Amen. One of the great, great practices of generations of black people all over the world is the ability to have joy, even in hard times. We call that resilience. The ability to have joy, even when times are hard. So I need your help. What's the last thing you were happy about? Sunshine, I heard. Yes, sunshine. Tell me again. Oh, very nice. Going what with your friend? Swimming. Swimming. Yes, what else? Help. Granola. Granola. Yes, yes. Yes. What's what's the last thing you can remember loving? Pizza. Pizza. What's spouse? Grandchildren. I heard Yes, 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 yes. So this song, this song says, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. This love that I have, the world didn't give it to me. This strength that I have, the world didn't give it. The world can't take it away. Because that feeling of joy 
that feel so, so wonderful in our bodies came from within. And it stays there. Can't nobody take it away from you. No one can steal it. But we can grow that love and share it with the whole world. We can do that. Do you believe it? Yeah? Yeah. Fantastic. Then let me teach you the song. It goes, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. And then, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. Then it goes, the world can't give it, the world can't take it away. Your turn, the world can't give it, the world can't give it, the world can't take it away. Good, good, wonderful, y'all. Mm. That's nice, no rehearsal and we sound like that, that's wonderful. Would you rise? Let's add some percussion, some rhythm, some rhythm to it and we'll sing. If you want to challenge yourself to make the rhythm more interesting, that's great. Here we go. This joy that I have, the world didn't give to me. Oh, this joy that I have, the world didn't give to me. Oh, this joy that I have. The world didn't give it to me, oh, the world can't give it, the world can't take it away. This strength that I have, this strength, this strength that I have, the world didn't give to me, oh, this strength that I have, the world didn't give it to me, oh, this strength that I have. The world didn't give it to me. The world can't give it. The world can't give it. The world can't take it away. This love that I have, this love. This love that I have. The world didn't give it to me. This love that I have. The world didn't give it to me. Oh, this love that I have. The world didn't give it to me, oh, the world didn't give it, the world can't take it away. This pride that I have, pride, this pride that I have, the world didn't give it to me, oh, this pride that I have, the world didn't give it to me, this pride that I have. The world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it. The world can't take it away. This peace that I have. This peace that I have. The world didn't give it to me. This peace that I have. The world didn't give it to me. This peace that I have. Oh. 
among us. Thank you. Let's allow, let's allow that sound to carry us into a time of quiet, a time of keeping quiet with one another so that we can listen to what is moving in our hearts within us, among us, and beyond us this day. As your spirit settles in, I invite you to notice the prayer that is on your heart this morning. Prayer for yourself, a prayer for someone else. Prayers of joy, prayers of sorrow. We carry all of this amongst us this day. And so I invite you, as you are moved, to speak aloud to type in the chat or to hold in your heart those that you would lift up to be surrounded by the love of this congregation. For all that we have named out loud, for all that we continue to hold in the silence of our hearts, for all that has been shared online. We are grateful for this opportunity to hold in community, knowing that together our hearts are capable of so much more than they are alone, that we need each other, that we need all of us. And so we pray that the grip of addiction be loosened, that the weight of oppression be lightened, that truth be told, that joy break through, and that love make every suffering bearable for us all. May it be so, and amen.
This faith of ours, Unitarian Universalism, is a living tradition. We hold sacred what is impermanent, not etching our beliefs in stone, but living in the realities of the world that is actually before us and wrestling with what our past has to tell us about the moment that we are in. Our faith, our theology, our grounding comes from texts, from history, from context. It is in relationship with past, present, and future. It's experiential. It moves. It comes out of and through life. It is a journey. A few years ago at the Harper Jordan Memorial Symposium that Blue, Black Lives of UU, hosted, the Reverend Sophia Betancourt reminded us that Unitarian Universalists are inheritors of a love ethic. We come out of a liberal, although not liberatory, Christian tradition with love of neighbor at the center. She asked us to dig into what it truly means to practice both democratic principles and this love ethic. I love this question and think part of it comes from a fierce recognition that what is before us is not just our problem, it's everyone's problem. We have an intertwined ecosystem, and as Arif shared with us earlier, this beautiful reminder that we cannot survive without one another. We need each other. With this love ethic is the accountability that comes from being in community. Accountability is a place to sit in. You need to be clear in how you enter, what you enter with, the power you may or may not hold, the power you may be required to let go of. It asks us to take risks, to build our skills, and to ask who are we in it? One of the places that I ask that question and how I practice accountability in some ways is through the annual Headwaters, Gather Headwaters Gathering, which MNIPL, Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light, where I'm on staff, that we offer each year. We meet at Itasca State Park with Anishinaabe elders and youth with people from many faiths, many practices and walks of life. We offer prayers at the waters. We work to restore right relationships, both between humans and with the non-human world. We stretch our imaginations and see firsthand the new economy that's being cultivated, where there is no net economy. It's one that is whole and equitable and sustainable. At these headwaters and during the fight to stop line three, we cried out, we are all treaty people, recognizing in part the fundamental covenant that exists between people and life. I come away from the headwaters more naturalized to place. Being naturalized to place, as Robin Wall Kimmerer writes in Braiding Sweet Grass, means to live as if this is the land that feeds you, as if these are the streams from which you drink that build your body and fill your spirit, as if 
as if, as if. That's the deeply transformational work that is before us, changing ourselves so that we can change our world. It's cultivating a powerful shift in imagination, in our politics, in our practices, so that we can become truly human with one another, truly interconnected to the web of life. And this takes an active divestment from privilege, from supremacy culture, from systems that are extractive and transactional, that diminishes the truths of how injustices and inequity, hardships and suffering intersect and compound. I was at a half-day silent retreat yesterday, and during one of the meditations, we focused the inhale on ourselves and the exhale on others. I breathe in me. I breathe out you. Will you breathe that once with me? I breathe in me. I breathe out you. When we are breathing, when we are in relationship, we are expanding our capacity to live with active compassion, with active hope on what we can do together. We can feel how much more our heart space can hold more than just one particular issue or cause. We can open ourselves up to the plurality of what we are really advocating for. Changes that all people need. Changes that address intersecting oppressions and harm. Changes that must happen within, among, and beyond ourselves. Instead of transactional advocacy, we are acting to transform the world. We are cultivating a communal response that can't exist in isolation, that can't exist in hubris, that is often messy and imperfect, that addresses both the pieces and the whole. Our tradition of Unitarian Universalism contains multitudes. And it brings with it a beautiful and sacred obligation to live our practice, live our values, live our faith, and live an ethic of love. And in this long-haul work of organizing and mobilizing, listening and lobbying, because friends, that's how we take personal change and we aggregate it to scale. This is what we need our collective action to matter. This is how we make things happen. And we do all of that, all of that, from this living tradition of Unitarian Universalism. For in this tradition, this is a place of practice and a place of becoming. It brings us back to love and it calls us forth to rise and to resist. I want to close my reflection with a poem called Blessed Are the Hungry by the Reverend Teresa Soto, a UU minister and activist. They write, I know that you are hungry for justice, 
And sometimes when you fail, it feels like the times when you open the refrigerator door, look inside, and close it, nothing having met your appetite. But there is always trying again. There is the fact that one just act is the beginning, and together we can build another. The gnawing hunger for a different future is one that we feed in the present. Your diligence, your tenacity, your willingness to learn, not just know, but also do, hunger shaping how you nourish, feeding one another with the long spoons of your compassion until you're strong enough to feed the part of the world that you can reach. Blessed be and amen. Good morning, my name is Sarah McMullen, and I'm here today to share with you the incredible history of reproductive justice and advocacy we have here at First Universalists. And I will share a personal story about the abortion I had when I was 25 years old. When abortion was illegal, before Roe versus Wade was decided at the Supreme Court in 1973, we had a member named Betty Benjamin and volunteers, including many clergy, who worked to repeal the abortion laws. It started in Betty Benjamin's home in 1967, where she and her husband Bob were raising their children. It eventually became a professionally run organization, the Minnesota chapter of the National Abortion Rights Action League, NARAL. This was written by Mary Young, who also put together this wonderful book called 100 Years of Liberation. It's in the church library, it's, um, and it includes Betty Benjamin and other women. In the early days, the interest and encouragement of the members of the Association of Universalist Women, AUW, at First Universalist, provided important psychological support for Betty in her work. In 1970, she offered a full program about abortion legislation for AUW. In 1970 was also the year that Dr. Jane Hodgson was convicted of performing an illegal abortion in Minnesota. Minnesota law at the time permitted abortion only if the woman, the life of the woman was threatened. Dr. Hodgson's patient, a young homemaker with three children, had contracted German measles in her first month of pregnancy. Dr. Hodgson wanted to perform an abortion for the woman who was asking for her help. So she filed a federal suit challenging the law. When the court delayed, Hodgson went ahead and performed the abortion in a hospital. As feared, Dr. Hodgson was sentenced to 30 days in jail. Her sentence was later suspended in lieu of probation for one year. The Minnesota legislature later changed the penalty for performing an illegal abortion to a life sentence. One of Betty Benjamin's self-proclaimed goals in those days was to follow legal situations such as Dr. Hodgson's and to report on them to other advocates. She and her cohorts supported Dr. Hodgson by serving on her legal defense committee. 
Betty con contacted over 30 Minnesota ministers to ask them to contribute to the Legal Defense Committee for Dr. Hodgson. It's the end of the quote. I'll always remember what Betty said. If you can't love the mother, how can you love the child? In 2003, at four church year, 50 people from First Universalist and 44 from around Minnesota went to Washington, D.C. to the March for Women's Lives. All Souls UU Church hosted UUs from all around the country the night before the march. Betty and Bob Benjamin's daughter, son-in-law, and young adult granddaughter, Megan Copperood, met us there. It felt so good to see how their family supported each other and women. My daughter, Johanna Kruger, attended with me and Mary Young and others from our church. I felt lifted up and empowered to join a million other people on the mall of the nation's capital. We carried posters that said we are pro-faith, pro-family, pro-choice. We marched with UUs from all around the country. We were heckled at one point in the march, but security kept the hecklers on the other side of the barriers, and we kept marching, feeling strong together. Before we left and after we returned, we held spiritual reflections guided by our minister, Kate Tucker. Now we are very fortunate that Reverend Ashley Harness Jimenez is here, and she has helped to ground us as we prepared for this day. After the march, my 23-year-old daughter and I participated in a Faith and Choices discussion group facilitated by Kelly Clement and Pam Vincent. I still had not told our daughter that I had an abortion. I was afraid she would judge me. When Kelly talked about how choice makes us human, fully human, it gave me the confidence to tell our daughter and later our son that when I was 25 and going back to college to complete a degree in 1977, I became pregnant. I wanted Johanna and Paul to know that I did not have regrets about having an abortion. This is my truth. The day came to have the abortion. Greg took me to the Meadowbrook Clinic where it was very quiet outside. It was a very solemn day for me. There were no hecklers like there would be in the 80s and 90s and to this day. Greg participated in a men's group in a room nearby. Going through the abortion together strengthened our resolve to get married later that year. A year after that, I finished college with a degree in child development and a teacher's license. I became an early childhood teacher. A few years later, Greg and I were ready to plan to have a child. First we had Johanna, and three years later we had her brother, Paul. I'm telling you my story to help take away the stigma of abortion and to encourage you to get involved. Through AUW, we have women here at church that are hosting gatherings, so you can follow your own journey of empowerment, tell your own story, and listen to others tell their reproductive justice stories. Now that we have a patchwork of state laws limiting access to abortion, in Minnesota we do have strong protections for reproductive health care, but there is more that we can and we must do. Please stop by our table in the social hall to find out how you can join our efforts to support reproductive justice in Minnesota.
Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for telling your story. It's important. Hello, my name is Suzanne Wilhite, a longtime member at First Universalist Church. And I was asked to speak to the church about um, persistence and advocacy. And I thought of a couple images. One is of my Ms. poster with Wonder Woman on my wall, resisting and persisting. And the t-shirts I wear that say, nevertheless, she persisted, which relates to Senator Warren. And I do persist, and I need this sometimes to remind me of um, the extra persistence needed. I thought of my persistence and advocacy work in my volunteer work for the Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA. I thought of what connects me to this issue, what motivates me, what grounds me, and what makes me persistent. I consider myself lucky in the parent um, I got, my mother. I was purely won the lottery on that deal. She's my definition of unconditional love, and she lived that. She treated people with interest, compassion, open heart. And she could never say no thanks to the Jehovah Witnesses who would come to our farmyard at any time of the day, and usually at a, a time to eat and have something to drink. My mom also carried 17 children. She had several miscarriages, which were never spoken about until we were adults. But she raised 14 children to adulthood. And she had lots of grandchildren and great-grandchildren, whom she loved all. She was active in her Walnut Grove Methodist Church, involved in the women's Sarah Circle. And she rarely said a bad word about anyone. She lived a life of faith, fairness, and forgiveness. And she always held out hope to me by never saying no. She'd say, we'll see, or it depends on the weather. But it wasn't no. And that gave me hope. There was, there was hope that things might happen. She was a good woman, mother, wife, and friend, and that little church was overflowing at her funeral over 20 years ago. My mother's living role model and my church connections are what influenced me to attend First Universalist Church, where I found the UU principles that resonated with those values. The inherent worth and dignity of every person, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, interconnected web, there's a whole list of them here, and they're good values to resonate with. They values that provide a reservoir uh, to fuel my persistence and advocacy work for enacting the ERA, and I need that persistence. It's been over 100 years that the federal ERA was introduced in 1923, and it is now 2023, and we're still trying to get the ERA done, federal level. But I got involved with this uh, ERA advocacy in 2016 when I watched uh, Hillary Clinton lose the electoral vote to uh, Trump. I was in a room full of women, 50 and 60 year old lawyers, who were there to celebrate a woman, woman wanting the presidency. And that didn't happen. That, and very early in the night, a lot of people were very sick and went home early just being distraught at the idea of what was happening for women. Shocked, angry, how did that happen? How could that happen in this day and age? Shouldn't men and women have parity at this point? Haven't we come a long way, baby? Well, the misogyny and disrespect of that campaign was one thing, but the loss questioned women's possibilities. It caused me to question 
my worth as a woman, and my nation's values. I needed to put my energy somewhere where I could make a difference, bring about change that would support all people to have equal access and opportunities to reach their goals. That drew me to enacting the ERA. And looking at my own career in government, I could see I had opportunities through affirmative action as a woman. I was able to get a better salary in government because there were opportunities for equal pay for equal work. I had good health care because there were comprehensive benefits that were not limited by religious beliefs of my employer. These opportunities for equal access to jobs, equal pay, equal health care are something that all people should have. So I've worked since 2016 specifically on the ERA as my justice issue. It's needed, as I mentioned, at the federal and the state level, our U.S. and state constitutions. Because the U.S. Constitution started out pretty good when it said, we the people, but they didn't mean me. And they didn't mean women or slaves or Asians or indigenous people. It really meant uh, white men with property, and we were the property. So we've been adding in rights ever since, and we still do not have equality under the law today. In fact, we just lost some rights as women with the Dobbs decision and that affects abortion and health care in the United States. We're going backwards on that. So in my view, inequality is fundamentally unfair, unjust, inhuman, and the fight for equal rights takes persistence. Resilience is required and continuing to show up is required. The good news is that in Minnesota, you voted, majority people voted, and we have a pro-ERA legislature right now Yes. We've had two hearings in the last week, and we're hoping for a floor vote next week. All we're asking, the legislature votes to put it on the ballot so you all get to vote for equality. In Minnesota, we adopted new language, and this is important because Nevada passed this at 58% last year. They expanded their ERA to be more inclusive. And it matters because of why we're here today. Equality under the law shall not be abridged or denied by this state or any of its cities, counties, or other political subdivisions on account of race, color, creed, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, age, disability, ancestry, or national origin. That means inclusive. That all means all. And, it's, and it builds on our Human Rights Act, which is a law which can change. An amendment is more foundational in our Constitution, harder to change. Our opposition, abortion, gender rights, sports. These are things that if we care about, we need to show up and support this for equality for all. So please stop by the table. I've got more information downstairs. You can make a difference and spread the word. So thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased that our offering today is going to the Joyce Food Shelf. When I was out of work a few years ago, my food shelf 
fed me and my family, and Joyce Food Shelf may be feeding right now the person sitting next to you, our beloved balcony people, our beloveds online, people just like me. And I want to share two power tools. When I was in my visioning group last week, and do your visioning group, it was really awesome. We realized that we need three ways to love on one another in church. We need charity, that direct service. We need solidarity, the kind of coming together that changes us as we change the world. And we need advocacy, reaching out to influence politicians, to mobilize public opinion, and to shift policies towards a just and loving world. These are two power tools. <laughs> we're going to donate food. We're going to donate generously of our money right now when SNAP benefits have just expired. The boost that was given to people on food stamps uh, during the pandemic expired March 1st and people are gonna be hit with big bills. So the food banks need your support now more than ever. And when you head downstairs for the social hour, we will have snacks because we have to feed ourselves. We will have the opportunity to donate. We will have coming together in solidarity around these issues and we will have iPads and uh, print information and these will be on the Moose Jaw website for all y'all online, that will let you put your legislators' phone number, email, and address into your contact list. Mine are on speed dial. <laughs> because we need all of those layers. Look around at how people are dressed. Are you wearing one layer in Minnesota's climate? Most are not, right? We need charity, solidarity, advocacy. Those are our layers of love. Those are our power tools. This is a big year for Minnesota. We have a House, a Senate, a governor's office that are all aligned much more with our values. 
This is the year where we need to gather at the halls of government. We need to make those calls. We need to have those relationships, those conversations, those storytelling with people that we can change the policies, change the systems, change the structures of inequality, inequity, injustice. So gather with us, meet us downstairs, learn more, and let's bring the power of our living tradition to make the change we need in the world. Friends, as we go to greet the world and the call of love, I invite you to rise. Let's sing a promise to one another. Where you go, I will go. Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. If you've been nourished by what you've heard, please consider supporting our ministry. Podcasts are free to download, but they cost money to make. Visit firstuniversalistchurch.org donate to make your gift. We are a faith community committed to dismantling oppression and building beloved community. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.